When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly roundup of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. I'm Janine, Olive's food director, and I'm hosting this episode. We've got two great guests on the podcast this week. Later on, Adam talks to Katie Davison, also known as the Oyster Lady, and that's because she's an expert. She'll be debunking a few myths about oysters. But first, I got to catch up with James Wetlow, who's written a fascinating new book about goat and why we should all be eating more of it. Not just because it's delicious, but because of ethical and sustainable reasons too. So I'm here today with um, James Wetlow, who's the author of a new book, Goat, Cooking and Eating, and also the owner of the Cabrito Goat Company, which is a company that is selling goat meat into um, restaurants, into butchers, and to the public via the the website. Um, It's a bit of a strange one, goat meat, isn't it? Because it's not something that... Oh, sorry. Welcome, James, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. um, But it's a bit of a strange one, the goat meat industry, because it's not something that in the past has been very popular with the British public. Yeah, which marks us out globally. Because we are one of the few countries that doesn't eat goat meat. Um, and I think it's really interesting as to why we don't. We, um, When we first started out, there wasn't anybody really doing, no. doing goat meat on any sort of scale, which meant that there was all these billy goats in the dairy industry mm-hmm. that had no home. So it was kind of a fixing the problem in the dairy industry also yeah. meant that we had to kind of fix a problem in the food in the sort of in the in the british diet in a way that's not a problem but it's a there is a hole in the british diet which should contain goat meat and there's a problem in the dairy industry because of all these billies (laughs) so you can bring the two together yeah so so just to be quite brutal about it because we might as well get it out of the way now (laughs) what happens in the british dairy goat dairy industry is billy goats are just killed at birth yeah there's a hundred thousand commercial milking nannies in the uk yeah um which leads to fifty thousand billy goats because nature decrees they usually have two yep. but when they the pregnant nannies usually have two kids nature will decree a 50 50 split yep. so there'll be about fifty thousand billy goats born every year on farms that nobody has any use for yep. until we came along that yeah. is um it the, the number is actually a little bit higher than that because not all the goats not all the goat dairies will keep all the females every year in order to replenish their stock okay so i mean nobody really knows because nobody keeps any detailed records of animals that they don't keep alive but we estimate about 70,000. That's where it was when we first started. Wow. Um, and from a really, I mean, that's the motivation for starting Cabrito. Yeah. From a, the, from, at a really fundamental level, I couldn't work out how an animal's life had no value. Yeah. I mean, we talk about, we talk about these animals as if, the term that we use is byproduct. Yeah. And that's wrong. 
they're a waste product. Yeah, they have it. no use. Yeah. Yeah. And we kind of, a byproduct makes it sound a little bit like it's <clears> okay. They're a byproduct now because they get used. But when we first started, they're a waste product. They were getting euthanized at birth and put into an incinerator. Yeah. And that, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why that's a bad idea. But fundamentally, for an animal's life to have no value just seemed really no, wrong. No, really to wrong. Me. Yeah. So <clears throat> you can't, so we, we go to the dairies and say, please don't do that. Rear them up for me and we'll sell them. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of the, the model of it. But that's really hard to do when there's no cultural history of eating goat meat in the UK. Yeah. So, so you had to try and find a place to put... We started a yeah. business with no product and no market. <laughs> <laughs> which it's was a really, massive leap of faith, really isn't it? stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but you had an idea and you had this dream to bring the two things together. Yeah, which and is... I think we have a lot. I mean, I worked for, I worked for Hugh at the River Cottage. Yeah, I was and... going to say, because you, you've, got, you've got quite a... Um, a huge background. I mean, with some great chefs, like you worked for the Eagle yeah. in Farringdon, you worked for 15 years, at, 15 years of cooking. And, yeah. you know, I grew up in Devon yeah. where I'm by the sea where most of the jobs you have when you're a kid are yeah. in washing up or, and then you go out to chopping onions and then before you know it, you're a, you know, you're a chef. Yeah. And I worked as a, you know, <laughs> frying fish and chips. So I've always been involved in catering in some yeah. way. So I had 15 years, of, when I when I decided what I wanted to do for a living, I came to London and was a chef for, about 15 years all in all wow. so but working with someone like Hugh yeah and seeing the campaigning that he's done kind of planted the seed in our head that actually mm. it would be possible to to change this food system because you see people that make positive change in mm. the food system quite regularly because he was a big campaigner Hugh friendly but installed for the, yeah, the no not, waste thing isn't it I mean there, there was well, the I was fish work, by, I was working you, yeah. for Hugh during the fish campaign yeah and during the and when he released the veg book I was in that tv series yeah. so you kind of it didn't I wasn't daunted by the prospect because a new change like that was possible and also like I said it's such a even now, after six years of doing it, it's just really stupid to knock yeah. these animals on the head and throw them in the bin when you can raise them up and yeah. put them into the food system. But the thing that, and it's not, I think it's really important when you're thinking about it that mm. it's not, the farmers don't want to euthanize the animals. The, People don't get into farming to kill perfectly no, good animals. No, of course they don't. But, and I talk about this in the book, it's, we're all responsible. I use the phrase omerta, which is the mafia phrase for everybody knows it happens and no one talks about it. <laughs> yeah. The phrase that, that um, Lance Armstrong used about drug taking in the yeah. Tour de France. The farmers don't want to knock the billies on the head, but they're no. not going to tell anyone about it because it's a real threat to their industry. The retailers, they don't want to tell anyone that the consequence of stacking their no. shelves full of cheese is dead billy goats. And we as consumers, we don't poke too far or lift no. the lid to find out that there are these problems. Yeah. And then when we do get a put goat in front of us, we think, well, I'm not eating that. So everybody's responsible no. for the for the poor for this particular uh, problem in the food system. I mean, I think that's why it was really important to talk about it right up front to say this is something that is is going to help the whole system. Yeah. You know, if you start eating goat, you're actually you're you're then going to eat goat's cheese as yeah. well. You the know, the thing about the thing about doing that is that then people try to apportion blame. And I think it's important to say that it's not the farmer's fault. They're not doing no. it because they want to do it. Yeah. And we, as a society, want these dairy industries to provide us with these products. Mm. We are also responsible on some level for the consequences, which in this case is billy goats. So yeah. what we've tried to do is just rear those billy goats up and create a market for them. And we have had a massive amount of help from the goat dairy industry because that's great because they yeah. know that it's a first of all the farmers don't want as i said they don't want to knock the billies on the head they'd rather sell them yeah. but they can't because they don't have a market so they have they have helped us and they have <laughs> taken the chance and we grew quite slowly which allowed them to sort of ha not have a massive amount of risk cuz when you suddenly have 
500 billies on your on your farm you've essentially doubled your feed bill of your juvenile animals so it's a huge investment for them yeah so and they're not going to do that unless they know they have a market so the slow growth that we've had has allowed them to be more confident and then keep more animals alive every year Mm. you know and there are still billies being euthanized in the uk and our job now is to i mean cabrita has a one-line mission statement all the billy goes into the food system yeah and that won't all be from us because but my, I see my. But you job, want to be the start of it, like the well, pioneer my, of it. I, I see my job as as being a marketer, one man yeah. marketing campaign for goat meat. <laughs> You're doing really that, well. <laughs> if that allows other farmers yeah. to find outlets for their billies, and eventually in five, yeah. ten years, all the all the billy goats go into the food system, then great, Cabrita yeah. will have done what it set out to do. And it's a testament to um, to what you're doing, and actually how delicious goat meat is. That you've you've got a lot of chefs backing you, like really good chefs who've all com- yeah. you know contributed to the boot. Yeah, I mean, they- we can talk about the the ethics of the food yeah. system and the ethics of eating goat meat all day long. Yeah, if but, it isn't delicious, yeah. we're not going to get yeah, exactly. Anywhere. So fortunately, it, yeah, is it is really delicious. And the thing about the thing about being <laughs> the thing about being perceived as a crazy guy that drives around London with goats in the back of his van, you know, is that people feel sorry for you. So when you go, so when <laughs> you've you go, already got an automatic so in there. <laughs> when you go and ask them how to do a book, can you give me a recipe? They're yeah. like, yeah, of course we can. Because we've watched. I think it's quite nice for the people. I mean, some of these chefs have become friends. Yeah. You know, and they've and they feel a sort of a certain amount of ownership because mm. they've helped us grow. Because they've put you on their menu as well, haven't not you? Like, yeah, yeah. Me yeah. As well, well. I mean, I make no good. secret. Yeah. Of, we've ridden on the coattails of, yeah. of people like Jeremy Lee and yeah. Yota Motolenghi yeah. and Neil Rankin and you know Mark Hicks and Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. Because, and it, when I say it now, it sounds like we had some grand plan, but we didn't. <laughs> it's I. The only reason that I sold it into restaurants because I'd worked <clears throat> in those restaurants. Yeah. I'd seen that model of sort of producer to back door of restaurant mm. through a through a guy called tom jones who supplies the best beef in london and i thought i could mm. just re, just replicate what he does <laughs> you know and so it was no it was no grand plan but yeah. then the benefit of that is you give it to guys who are paid and it's their living to make it look and taste as yeah. good as possible and then suddenly you have the advent of social media and instagram and your product looks amazing because yeah. some you've paid someone to someone's paid <laughs> you to stylize it and then someone else is paying to consume it so that and that what that getting into sort of those high end restaurants, those well known restaurants. I mean, yeah. we got onto the St John menu pretty early, and we've pretty much stayed there. the The effect that that has in oh, what's the word like visibility? Or? Yeah, well, it's not just visibility. It's almost like like, kud- like it, kudos, it, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it. it it, it rubber stamps it. It says yeah. this is okay to eat because yeah. St. John says it's okay yeah, yeah. to eat. But you're right. I mean, you need that. It's that stamp of approval yeah. from peop- from chefs that people really respect. Like all yeah. the names there, they're not they're not like celebrity chefs. They're chefs that people follow and they're chefs that people really respect well, used, their opinion. I used to do it. I mean, on my days yeah. off, like pre-smartphones, yeah. I used to get on my bike and ride around London and read yeah. people's menus. because then And then I'd get ideas for what for I wanted to cook you, the following yeah. week. Yeah. So now you're sitting on the bus on the way home and you you have a quick Google of yeah, a few of menus course. and you see goat pop up mm. and then people say, where do they get it? And you make a few phone calls and you come to me yeah. or, you know, one of the other suppliers. And that's kind of, there's a, there's a perpetual motion in that. The more mm. that, the more we do, the more we do, the more menus are on, the more menus are on yeah. because it's visibility. You know? So then, then things like, you know, the odd tea, like Matt Gillen won Great British Menu oh, right, with yeah. our goat. So suddenly, I don't know, a couple of million people are seeing goat on a main course yeah. and that sort of stuff. You know, it feels like we've introduced a new product to the market. Do you think it's hard for them to make the leap, though, from because previously to that, 
to having your go, I have to say probably the last time I had it would have been at like a Caribbean restaurant yeah. or something. And it would yeah, have yeah, been yeah. The, the quite tough, older, massive chunks of bone totally in it. Kind of, it's a totally different product, isn't yeah. it? Cause I think that's what I want to get across to people as well. It's... Um, it hasn't got that really high kind of gamey taste that the old goat can I think have. The simplest way to describe yeah. it is mutton and lamb. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, and kids are the lamb version, and yeah. mutton are the older animals. Yeah. Um, the sort of the older ones that you eat in those. I mean, the reason those those stews have those powerful flavours in it yeah. is to stand up to the flavour of, yeah, yeah. of the ingredient. Whereas with the kids, it's much more. It's much more like lamb, and they're yeah. a similar size. So, kind of a rule of thumb, which I don't like saying, is you. Anything you can do with a lamb, you can do with a goat. Yeah. And uh, sort of the, the next question on from that is, like, why don't I just eat lamb? Yeah. The answer to that is there are a lot of recipes in the British sort of lexicon that would originally have been goat recipes. Okay. But because people have written recipe books, you yeah. can't get hold of lamb in the UK. You can't get hold of goat in the UK. People They've have just switched lamb. it. Like switched it up. tagine. Yeah. How many... How many goat tagines <laughs> do you think you have in Morocco as yeah. opposed to lamb tagines? You're much yeah. more likely to have yeah. a, you know, and that's certainly true of, all, of most of the curry recipes in the book. Yeah. But I think one of the things that, that the book does, I think, is is show you the breadth yeah. of the ingredient you know, and all of those different influences. Because it's not just a slow cook stew meat it's you can do everything like again like you said with lamb you've got your you've got your fillet you've got your roast leg you can slow cook it i slow cooked it for a recipe for our magazine but you can also make kebabs and flash cook them my favorite my favorite recipe of my own in there that isn't isn't one of the guest ones is the kibber which is raw oh yeah which is raw chopped which is like the syrian version of a of a steak tartare yeah and the reason i love it is because it's light and fresh and it has that kind of ironiness that you have in a raw meat. Yeah. But I also love it because it's a million miles away from what people think goat it's is. It's going to be, Which yeah. is tough. And like you said, people have this perception in their <clears> minds <throat> of what goat is. And then that, to have, to serve it raw with some lemon zest and some mince, parsley and mm. pine nuts, then that's a million miles away from where, from people's perception of it. What would be the ideal then? Would it be that supermarkets would start picking it up and, and using it or getting it on their shelves so people... <sighs> You know, in terms of visibility and, yeah, and I mean, being able to get a hold of it. It kind of loathes me mm. to say. Yeah. Because, but if you want if the... If you want it to go into the mainstream. If you want to solve the problem, you need the distribution. Yeah. That's the bottom line. And the... So, yes, if it ends up on one of the big four's shelves, then the problem goes away. Yeah. We kill 116,000 lambs a week in the UK. <clears> There's wow. only maybe 70,000 billy goats and, well, juvenile goats available. Yeah. So, you know, that's... I don't know, that's five days worth of a week, five day, four days of a week's <laughs> lamb killing wow. for an entire year. And that's a real opportunity for somebody yeah. because that'll only be enough supply for one major multiple retailer. Exactly. So there's an opportunity there for, some, for one of the large retailers to come along and ha- just have this British product to yeah. themselves. So, yeah, I mean, it's this, this, and that's why I've always thought that the problem will be solved because when you think about scale, yeah. that isn't a massive <clears throat> leap, you know. I mean, it's we started with four goats in a field to now have a book five, five years later yeah. and to be supplying, you know, 80-plus restaurants and to have, the, to have the sort of business that we have now. That feels like we've done the hardest. We take maybe 30% of all the billies born in the UK now. Really? So that's, that's, seems like... 
a huge amount. Well, it, and it also feels like the hardest 30%. Yeah. You would have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to get it from zero to 30. Exactly, yeah. You well, think it would be easier to get it from 30 to 60 and yeah. then 60 to 90 and then, you know, and then hopefully all the problems go away. Yeah. So that's kind of the... The goal is definitely, and I think it's 100% achievable, that, yeah. that it will end up on supermarket shelves and and the problem will be over because they have the reach that they have. Mm. The thing about we've now got to a size where we can start introducing the sort of efficiencies that make it cheap enough for supermarkets to be interested. Yeah, that's the problem as well, isn't it? Because people are still, or, you know, for whatever reason cost is always an implication for people yeah, buying 100%. so and for supermarkets yeah. trying to get the prices down i guess so. well the goat is always kid goats are always going to be expensive because yeah. because of the way that the industry is set up i mean the the goat industry all the goats in the uk more or less are, are part of the goat dairy industry which means the economic driver of that industry is the milk so when the animals are born mm. the nanny goats go straight back into the milking parlor because that's their function that's yeah yeah and the that's why the kids were a byproduct yeah. so in order like all mammals they need to drink milk so in order to keep them alive you need to give them a milk replacement powder and that milk replacement powder is expensive yeah. it's about 50p a day i mean it starts off at 5p a day and, then it, and, six, bigger, and six yeah. weeks it's yeah. a pound a day so but you level it out it's about 50p a day yeah. so if you have a six to eight week old billy goat mm. in a shed that will be they'll have maybe 50 or 60 pounds worth of milk powder inside it a lamb will stay on the ewe it's because the economic driver yeah, yeah, of the of sheep course. system yeah. is the baby lamb. Yeah. So you're not milking the milk out of the ewe and then having to give the sheep replacement. So the two animals at the same age, one will have 60 quid's worth of cost attached to it and one will have pretty much zero, some some labour costs mm-hmm. and, you know. But so it's, ne- it's never going to be a cheap meat. It's never going to be a cheap meat. But people can eat it and help and if they so for example if if anyone's listening they're like where can i get a hold like where where do they where do they go to buy it well my uh, the advice i give in the book is first of all your local farmer's market there'll probably be someone selling cheese there goat's cheese they will probably now keep a few billies alive okay if you ask your local butcher most butchers can get most things if you ask might take them a week or so that they'll be able to find it because the the change that's happened in the six years that since we started is people are now dairies are now keeping more of their animals alive and managing to find outlets yeah so those are originally i'd say farmers markets and then your local butcher and if all that fails we have a shop on the website that delivers (laughs) but i but i I am i am true to my you know shop local and support your local butcher no no i mean that's great advice basically because once the demand increases then maybe you know that butcher will start stocking it without actually being asked um and i would rather be 50 percent of a big market than 100 percent of a small one yeah. And you're also you've got an initiative with um, Farm Africa as well, haven't you? As part of your, of your yeah, book. Well, tell us about that. We've always we also support another much smaller charity called Kids for Kids. We buy oh, okay. a goat a month for them, um, and I've always felt that that our business, business in general, should have a charitable aspect to it. Mm. Um, and so we decided straight away we would do that. Um, the, the partnership with Farm Africa came about because I was asked to do a sort of demo for them, one of the restaurant shows with goat. And I got to know the work that they do, um, in the Tigray Valley and how they've just revolutionized the community. Which part of Africa is it? Ethiopia, Ethiopia, right. The Tigray Valley is where Michael Burke did that really famous, 
uh, report that was on the Six o'clock News that inspired Bob oh Geldof God, to yeah. do the to do the Live wow. Aid, you know, and to do the and sort yeah. of awoke a consciousness among yeah. among our generation. I yeah. mean, I was I don't know five when yeah. that came out. I think something like that. Um, and so they they started about twenty years ago with three goats and one family, and they now have ten thousand mainly female-headed ha- households. Yeah, because I was reading in your book because the men kind of leave the households to go and find work in the city, don't they? And they go and find casual work and they yeah. never come back, leaving women to raise children and basically run the community. Yeah. So, so they now have 10,000 in this, in this, in this, in this area. Um, and the only stipulation for joining the programme is that once your herd is established, you need yeah. to find someone else who doesn't have goats and give them three goats, sort of mentor them through the process. So... The change that they've achieved is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, all, all of the the things that you would expect to happen, like um, infant mortality has fallen off a cliff, literacy mm. rates have risen, uh, life expectancy has risen, all those kind of things. But they've introduced goats into this ecology. And what they've managed to do is re-green the valley because the, the income that they get from the, from, the, from the goats has allowed them to microfinance things. So yeah. they've irrigated the valley, which means that they've now got a, uh, a farm. Uh, they've got a flower business, which means they, they also have bees, so they make honey. So. People that have no land and no skills can yeah. now rent out that land for grazing rights to other people with. Wow. So it's created this entire economy. But the other thing that it's done is it, which is kind of this, the thing that fascinated me about it was this offshoot of this project, yeah. which was essentially to give people an income and feed them. And, yeah. you know, it's increased female representation in government by 600%. <laughs> That's because, crazy. Which is insane. Because I think you said in the book that traditionally women weren't allowed, well, they, they weren't given animals to look after. The whatever, case study because, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed the guy that runs the project yeah. over a Skype line, James Maluwu, and he was, and there's a case study in some of their literature that women were considered difficult if they opened their mouths. But now they're going to market. So yeah. They've got a product that people want to buy. So they've had to learn skills of how to interact with yeah. other people in order for their, in order for their to get the most out of their their new business. Wow. But the other thing that Farm Africa has done is it, it has selected from the community people that they see are our sort of natural leaders. Yeah, brought them into the Farm Africa fold, and then. They've kind of worked their way up through the Farm Africa system because the the goat system is sort of of the people by the people. <laughs> so they and Farm Africa kind of yeah. gently pull themselves yeah, out away. as it becomes sort of run by the yeah, local people. Self sufficient then, yeah. And these these women have found themselves sort of lead, in leadership roles and then left Farm Africa and thought, what shall I do? And the obvious thing is, I'll go into local government. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so, and it is absolutely incredible. So, all of the things we think charities do, yeah. it does. But it also has this amazing knock-on effect to improve society. Yeah. And what's the catalyst for that? Goats. And I, and I, for me, <laughs> that is an amazing achievement for, an goats. and it also paints a picture yeah. of what humans and goats' relationship has been is. like throughout the year. Yeah. Like, goats have. Goats are adaptable and they're able to live in ecologies that have allowed humans to live in areas they wouldn't otherwise be able yeah. to live in. I mean, stuff like that, you know, it raises the question as to who domesticates who because there are communities living halfway up mountains <laughs> that's only happened for the goat and the poor yeah. guy who owns them has got a slug away. But they, but they, because they allowed people to make a living or yeah. to make products that allowed them to exist in areas that other animals weren't allowed, that yeah. gave them... 
that gave them a there are goats were the first domesticated farm animal yeah right and that has a lot of uh that has a lot of um implications because what do goats produce goats produce milk but when we first domesticated goats humans were lactose intolerant so they weren't drinking liquid milk which is really counterintuitive why would you keep a dairy animal but not be able to drink its milk (laughs) the thing that you do is ferment it which makes it consumable Uh, for humans so you have yogurt and you have cheese right and what do those things do those things keep so it gives you something to trade Mm. which means you could live halfway up a mountain you could make yogurt and cheese and once a week you come down the mountain and you could swap it for all the things you needed to survive and go back up the mountain. So right at the beginning of humans and trade, we're a relationship with humans and goats. Yeah. And so you fast forward that all the way through to how they're now in, in the modern day changing people's lives for, in yeah. a really positive way in the Tigray Valley. You write that down and next to it you put a chapter of how in the West we knock them on the head and chuck them in the Yeah, bin. it's ridiculous. And you just think, I don't have to bang that point no, home. No, no. You guys are smart enough to work out how stupid <laughs> that is for yourselves. You know? And that's that was kind of the, that's, I mean, I think the Farm Africa do amazing work mm. and there has been a lot of stuff in the newspaper recently about the international aid budget and yeah. how we're wasting money and blah, 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 blah. Farm Africa's major source of funding is the, is the, is the foreign aid budget. So next time you hear Pretty Patel mm. on the radio saying we should slash the age budget, it's not money that's going directly to, to Rolls Royces on African dictators. No. That's a massively outdated view. <clears throat> what it's doing is funding... British-based charities that are empowering communities to do really positive changes in their ecology as well as the la- I mean, that's land management. Yeah. It's not, that's land management. <clears throat> it's not just about putting food in bowls for people. It's teaching people to, it's to teaching manage them their how environment. To keep, keep putting food in bowls for themselves, basically. But yeah, it's also it's not stopping just soil money. erosion. Yeah. And, I mean, there are loads and loads. There's, there's the society, there's the... the the improvements in the lives of the people in the society. There's also mm. the improvement in the environment, the, the the ecology of that area. Yeah, you know. So, just I mean, I don't put anything about the about the aid budget apart from in the back because I didn't really <laughs> want to enter into a political. But it's worth thinking about when people talk about the aid budget. I think, that's, yeah, that's and I think it you know it it sounds like such a great charity and scheme, and people can go and investigate that and your your book goat i think is it 50 percent of the profit from 50 percent of my fee and 50 percent of That's the of the royalties amazing. go to yeah. go to farm africa farm yeah. africa so if people buy this book which incidentally is also full of the most incredible yeah, it's also recipes for all the other stuff yeah yeah but <laughs> it, it is a beautiful cookbook with some of the chefs that we said before as well as recipes from yourself um and it's called goat cooking in Eason by james wetlow which is Published by Quadrille, is it next week or is this April the fifth? Yeah. April the fifth, next 5th, week, which yeah. next Thursday. Yeah, yeah. Um, so people can go out and buy that. If you want to um, look further into Cabrito, you've got a website. Is it just called Cabrito? Cabrito.co.uk. Yeah. Nationwide delivery and yeah. all the good information you could ever. Can... <laughs> or just ring James up because he knows a lot yeah. about goats. <laughs> As he says on the cover, James knows a lot about yeah. goats. Well, thank you so much for coming to That's chat right. to us today, James. It was an absolute pleasure. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. 
Uh, hi guys, I'm here with Casey Davidson, who's uh, the founder of the London Oyster Week. Hi there. Um, and we're going to just tell you a little bit about oysters. So first of all, I think wh where we're going to head with it is uh, we look at like the environmental benefits of uh, oysters. Absolutely. Um, they're kind of like one of nature's eco-heroes. Yeah. Um, there's a lot that people don't realise about quite how beneficial they are to the environment they actually grow into reefs when they're left to grow naturally right um and those reefs provide an in, a habitat for about 200 plus other species to thrive right and that's why they're known as a keystone species right right um in addition to that the reefs will provide like a storm surge defense um from coastal erosion which mm -hmm. i think is a very sort of relevant matter at this day and age with yeah, the issues yeah. we have with flooding and and um rising sea levels so yeah. you know that's just just one element um when they grow in natural reefs they've got this, um, like I said, a keystone species status because of the amount of life they actually sustain in the water. Yeah, right. They're also are they also really good for uh, releasing or taking away nitrogen or releasing nitrogen yeah, in carbon dioxide? Not releasing. It's um, basically what happens is obviously with modern farming, there's a lot of fertilizer put into the soil um, that washes down, you know, the the river systems into the sea, mm -hmm. and people think that's great. It's fertilizing the um, plant life in right. the ocean, but obviously it's not a natural balance so you get these algae blooms algal blooms yeah, right. and there's too much of it and it kind of takes the oxygen out of the water right. so oysters feed on the algae which is why they're so delicious and mm -hmm. plump yeah. um, but they also extract nitrogen and CO2 from the atmosphere um, by uh, the, they're, they're known as carbon capture tools essentially because they sort of capture it in their shell and it's there yeah. sort of held as opposed to in the actual atmosphere in the, uh, right okay yeah. right cool um, and what about as like a, a food source? How how long does an oyster take to grow? Is is it because obviously, I mean, sustainably they're just ne almost never ending as a as a food source. Really, you just yeah. grow it. Well, looked after properly, that's absolutely true. They're um, one of the most sustainable foodstuffs on the planet um, because they actually are a positive impact species. Mm -hmm. um, you know, quite often people say neutral. But this is, this is quite fascinating because they actually have a positive uh, contribution to their environment. Um, they grow um, commercially uh, to commercial size by about two to three years usually. Right, okay. That can vary depending on where they grow because of the different nutrients in the water mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm. different flow yeah. um, of the tides and the river systems. Um, and um, yeah, they, uh, they're one of the most kind of um, sustainable in that respect because farming is basically animal husbandry. There's not a huge amount you have to do apart from right. hold them in the water area. Yeah, so you, uh, do you have to like change the environment as, at different stages or anything? Or is it like, it's not Some... just like put them in, put them on, on, you know, in their environment and then leave them there, pull them up in three years, eat them? No, it, it, you, you, you can't just leave them there for the three years because you have to kind of, like I said, a bit of animal husbandry where you have to check on the growth. Right. Um, you have to separate as they grow, obviously the bags that they're in, if they're using the pack and, uh, rack and posh system, um, the bags will be, they will have certain gauge holes for the smaller oysters and a larger population per bag. Right. And then as they grow, you separate them out into big, into more bags with bigger gauge holes, right. more water flow. Yeah. And that's how your oyster grows, essentially. Right, okay. So you're just basically keeping an eye on them, moving them around. There is the farming method where they're tumbled, which means that it breaks the, the sort of shell edge off and you get right. a neat little deep cupped oyster, right. uh, which is beneficial for commercial purposes. Right, it, just, it um, looks more regular, more Yeah, pretty, and the oyster spends more time putting its growth into the actual meat as opposed to the shell then. I, I, I always right. liken it a little to, you know, a tree that has been treated in a bonsai tradition. Right. It's like snipping the... Um, branches so that the bulk of it grows in the yeah, centre, yeah, yeah, the yeah. shape it and the form. It isn't long and wispy and, and right. Okay, cool. Yeah. 
Cool. And I think we should probably do some myth busting, shouldn't we? Because I reckon there's, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about oysters. Um, yes. So I think I'd like to start on this, like the months of the year that you can eat oysters in. Yeah, well, you can eat them all year round. Mm-hmm. Um, that goes very much um, for the Pacific oysters, or also known as rock oysters, yeah. which are the most prolifically farmed oysters around. And they're the ones that you'll see most often on your table. They're yeah. teardrop shaped, um, often with quite sort of obvious striations of black and white Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. or grey, brown. Um, The other reason that that um, theory is in is because we have the native oyster, Austria edulis, which is a lot less prolific. And um, they're a lot harder to actually farm. So most of the populations that we access are wild. Right. So to make sure those um, oyster beds, like the one in the fowl, the fowl native, Mm. native, um, are protected... They're only allowed to be fished during the months with an R. Right. Um, so that they can breed and spawn safely mm-hmm. um, and it sustains the population. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, cool. So that's one of the big reasons for that. I think the other is an old myth whereby um, people thought that, um, you know, in the old days they were the foodstuff of the poor and there was no refrigeration. Right. And so so same, in- as, same as probably as the pork like myth. You know, you wouldn't eat uh, pork in the summer months simply usually because there was no refrigeration exactly. and, it, yeah. and it spoils quick, much quicker. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it was a kind of a self-protection thing from, you know, lack of refrigeration as opposed to anything else. Yeah, okay, perfect. And yeah, I wanted to talk about like sort of the native rock because for me that like, I are they... So is that the difference in where they're grown, or is that an, a specific species difference? Native and rock are two different species. Right. Um, we only have two species growing in the UK. Uh, rock is um, known as Pacific oyster. Right. Its Latin name is Crassostria gigas, and so that's the species Crassostria gigas right. rock. Pacific, Um, and that's the one I mentioned that's farmed uh, prolifically across the UK and Ireland. Um, And what you'll find is the the confusions there because people don't realise that, say, a Whitstable oyster, a Dooncastle oyster, a Porthilly oyster, um, a Menai oyster, as the ones we've uh, been eating today, are all from different areas in the UK and Mm -hmm. Ireland. They're the same species. Yeah, so that's, that's, again, I I wouldn't have known that. Obviously, where they're from differentiates them but I didn't actually know they were all the same species. It's the same species grown in different areas and that's again where we compare it to um, the culture of wine because Mm -hmm. the same grape will produce a completely different wine in a different vineyard and it's it's exactly the same with oysters. You'll grow the same species and it can even vary in one farm from a part of the estuary you know further out towards the salinity of the ocean further up the estuary where it's more brackish water yeah. um, and also the tides and the movement yeah, and yeah. the nutrient flow it's, if you imagine it's a proper movable feast for those oysters absolutely yeah yeah <laughs> and will that depend on what sort of like uh, uh, algae they're eating and like and yeah like you say the salinity of the water will change yes. the character of the oyster and all of that um I mean, there's a famous oyster, there's the oysters in France that um, turn green from the amount of algae right, they eat. Yeah, and yeah. people get a bit scared of that, but it's yeah, just... It looks... that, yeah, it, it might scare people, but, you know, cucumbers are green. We eat cucumbers easily. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. all about perceptions. And, you know, like we've discussed, there's a lot of myths around oysters and... Um, People are worried about eating them, not only at different times of the year, but uh, there's the myth of drinking them with spirits, thinking that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's abs- absolutely untrue. Yeah. Um, you can make cocktails with oysters. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. I mean, whenever I eat oysters at home, uh, I drain some of the juice out and drink it uh, usually with like a bit of ginger beer and a bit of whiskey. It's nice. really nice. It's like a kind of sweet, salty, spicy yeah. uh, little drink. Absolutely. Um, the meroir and the terroir. Exactly. 
And so what would you say is a good uh, like entry-level way of eating oysters? Is there a certain type which are maybe slightly smaller? Because I know, speaking to some people, it's sometimes the size of the oyster, which or is that, well, I suppose you can get different grades, so you can just get yeah. it. But is there like one maybe that's more neutral, less minerally, or like, you know, is there... Well, the thing is, it's really hard because people's tastes are so very different. You know, mm. some people love the saltiness, so they'll have one from you know that's farmed further out in the ocean like a jersey oyster for example yeah yeah um and then others would like the more earthy tones of a native that's um from further up the estuary so in terms of an entry-level oyster i would more go for how it's served as opposed to where it comes from okay yeah um so what you would do is i would always choose one that's quite small Mm -hmm. um you know if someone's doing it for the first time they don't want to be overwhelmed by a large oyster yeah right and generally a small oyster is better for raw on the half shell and um also, there's if people are really if there's quite a lot of trepidation about a raw creature in a shell, then cooking them is no problem. People yeah. um, are finding out more and more how exciting gastronomy is with oysters. Absolutely, just like I said with mixology, um, that's that's a real burgeoning field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, alcohol often helps people have their first oyster too. <laughs> <laughs> usually, usually goes hand in hand. Yeah. It? So you know you can do um, your tempura oyster, so deep fried, mm-hmm. which is always going to help. Yeah, yeah, delicious. Um, I do a dish called a carmaroli, yeah. which is very similar to carbonara. Um, this is what I call a stealth oyster dish. This stealth. is the best for people who say, I will not eat You will oysters. not eat them, right. Yeah. So what you do is you just cook some pasta, crispy bacon. Um, you make an emulsion of oysters with um, rapeseed oil. So you just right. blend Blitz it. Them. Yeah, yeah, right. You kind of need to try and do it gently with an emulsifier. Almost like you're making mayonnaise. Yes, like, like oyster I've, mayonnaise. I, uh, yeah, where I, where I used to be a chef, we used to make an oyster sort of emulsion exactly. mayo type thing. It's yeah. exactly the same. Yeah, it's right, because exactly the, the fattiness sort of hot, like basically binds the water into yep. emulsion, like, like yep. an egg yolk, basically. So you end up with a beautiful, smooth cream sauce. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to go for it in terms of those people who are like, oh, but it's got a grey colour, or you can uh, do what I do and trim the gills off. Yeah. So it takes the darkness out, a bit like you would with a white sauce when you use white pepper instead of black pepper. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so you've you've made your emulsion, you've got your pasta mm-hmm. and the bacon, crispy bacon, chuck that in and then just stir the emulsion yeah. into yeah, yeah. the into pasta bowl, and it's yeah. like a beautiful carbonara but with oysters yeah so you just get sort of that sort of salinity that mineralness and the umami you know it's like it just really you know it because essentially the you you hardly have to cook oysters for very long at all and when you do the dish like this the hot pasta basically just just because it's yeah gently cooks through the sauce yeah Yeah, Mm. i did a recipe for grilled oysters i made like a garlic butter um and uh, yeah just grilled them with some hot sauce and some coriander yeah oyster roasts are fantastic you can just set them up on the barbecue and have loads of different Toppings like I do a garlic and rosemary one, and yeah. it's like a roast dinner in a half shell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. delicious. Um, pepper sauces, Tabasco, all yeah. of it. It's wonderful. Because the sh- the shell is almost like its own little frying pan, isn't it? It's exactly. Like, it's, it's a like ceramic. Which uh, which I've pot. always used as another reason to explain their sustainability. They come in a ready-made, um, ethical and sustainable dish. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> so. Why don't we talk a bit about the actual Oyster Week, like what Mm -hmm. you're basically trying to achieve and uh, what's on in London? Okay, so it's the inaugural London Oyster Week. It's never been done before. Um, The reason behind the format was to involve as many venues as possible without them having to sort of leave their premises, promote oysters in situ, especially Mm -hmm. for the people who've been doing it for a very long time, you know, like 100 years or so. Um, And um, we just want to really raise awareness of oyster culture in a really sort of formal and holistic without being boring but um a really formal and holistic way so people are meeting the farmers Mm -hmm. um we've got the oyster atlas event at north bank on the 24th of april which um 
present, five farmers and counting coming along with their oysters to meet the public, oh, cool. uh, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a massive part of it is oyster mixology. Obviously, we're being sponsored by Brucladi, Mount Gay, and uh, Remy Cognac, and we're doing some very carefully matched drinks with the oysters. Yeah. And um, we have this wonderful Isla tradition where Brucladi whiskey comes from, where we put whiskey in the oyster shell. Yes, I, um, I tried that this morning. It was yeah, delicious. It and uh, quite the breakfast, yeah, I will say. Yeah, breakfast of Scottish champions. Yeah, and my, kings, my, I would my say. Scottish head. Her, 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 Hereditary. Hereditary. <laughs> um, definitely, that's not the whiskey talking, by the way. I am. I, am, uh, I have very little. Um, yeah, I was definitely uh, pleased with that breakfast. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. As I say, good. you know, it comes because oysters are so nutritional, you know, so absolutely jam packed with good nutrition. Uh, it's like having your Alka Seltzer in the drink. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Lovely. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Absolute pleasure. Cheers. That was the Old Magazine podcast. If you like this episode or you have any suggestions, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. For more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can pick up a copy of our brand new Easter issue from News Agents Now or go and download the app version. Bye for now and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chat.